0: Part one of Joseph Conrad, a personal remembrance by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part one, section one. C'est toi qui dors dans l'ombre. One. He was small rather than large in height, very broad in the shoulder and long in the arm, dark in complexion, with black hair and a clipped black beard. He had the gestures of a Frenchman who shrugs his shoulders frequently. When you had really secured his attention, he would insert a monocle into his right eye and scrutinise your face from very near as a watchmaker looks into the works of a watch. He entered a room with his head held high, rather stiffly, and with a haughty manner, moving his head once semicircularly in this one movement he had expressed to himself the room and its contents his haughtiness was due to his determination to master that room not to dominate its occupants his chief passion being the realization of aspects to himself in the pent farm beneath the south downs there was a great kitchen with a wavy brick floor on this floor sat a great many cats they were needed to keep down rats and they got some milk of a morning every morning a wild robin with a red breast and greenish khaki body would hop not fly across the floor of the kitchen between the waiting cats the cats would avert their glances pulsing their sheathed claws in and out the robin would hop through the inner doorway of the kitchen across an angle of the low dining-room and so up the bedroom stairs when the maid with the morning letters and the tea-tray opened the bedroom door the robin would fly through the low dark room and perch on a comb stuck into a brush on the dressing-table against the long low leaded windows it awaited crumbs of bread and tiny morsels of lump sugar from the tea-tray it had never been taught to go on these adventures this robin attended at the opening of the first letter that more than a quarter of a century ago the writer received from joseph conrad the robin watched with its beady eyes the sheet of blue-grey paper with the large rather ornamental handwriting it was afterwards drowned in a cream-jug which took away from its aspect of a supernatural visitant above the large kitchen was the large men's room where the hinds of the farm had been used to sleep it was entered by a ladder which was removed at night so that the hinds should not murder the farmer or do worse to the farmer's wife the low windows of this low room were leaded in diamond shapes the glass frosted with the green of great age one of these windows had inscribed upon it no doubt by a diamond the name john Kemp and the date eighteen twenty two conrad always objected to john kemp as a name not sufficiently aristocratic for the hero of romance who was the grandson of an earl but the writer liked it and it remained so in the book Years before that, looking through the pages of Dickens all the year round, for woodcuts contributed by Ford Maddox Brown, upon whose biography he had been engaged, the writer had come upon a short rendering of the official account of the trial of Aaron Smith. This had been the last trial for piracy that had ever been held at the Old Bailey, and the prisoner was acquitted." the story told by him in the dock was sufficiently that of romance as it now stands it struck the writer at once after the reading of the first few paragraphs that here indeed was what we used to call a subject with a tone of voice as if the word had been italicised for certain subjects will grip you with a force almost supernatural as if something came from behind the printed the written or the spoken word or from within the aura of the observed incident in actual life and caught you by the throat really saying treat me so, in the dusky air of the British Museum reading-room, whilst that first perusal was being made, it was almost as if the genie of the place exclaimed, "Treat this subject if you do, it will mean fortune, if not, lifelong ill-luck It brought fortune. The first treatment of that story by the writer was of an incredible thinness it was like the whisper of a nonagenarian and the writer had tried to make it like the whisper of a nonagenarian it was finished just before in eighteen ninety eight or so conrad first came to see the writer at limpsfield why the writer should ever have thought of writing of pirates heaven knows or why having determined to write of pirates it should have been his ambition to treat them as if in terms of a very faded manuscript of a greek play but that was certainly his ambition and as it proved his ambition was certainly granted to him to achieve every sentence had a dying fall and every paragraph faded out the last sentence of that original draft ran, Above our heads a nightingale, did something, poured out its soul, as like as not, or poured out its melody on the summer air, the cadence calling there for eleven syllables. As it was June, it sang a trifle hoarsely. The reader will observe that the writer had then already read his Trois comptes just as the first words of conrad's first book were pencilled on the fly-leaves and margins of madame bovary the last cadences then of herodias run et toi toi, ayant pris la tête des yorknans sont alliantes vers galilée comme elle était très lourde il la portait alternativement as cadence the later sentences are an exact pastiche of the former in each the first contains nineteen syllables the concluding one commences with as it was and is distinguished by the u sounds of june and lud and the o sounds of horse and warthin it was in that way that before the writer and conrad met they had studied their flaubert Conrad came round the corner of the house carrying a small child. That did not impede his slightly stiff gait and the semicircular motion of his head as he took in the odd residence, the lettuces protected by wire netting from the rabbits, or the immense view that lay before the cottage. He was conducted by Mr. Edward Garnet in those days the writer had been overcome by one of those fits of agricultural enthusiasm that have overwhelmed him every few years so that such descriptive writers as have attended to him have given you his picture in a startling alternation as a piccadilly dude in top hat morning coat and spats and as an extremely dirty agricultural labourer mr garnet lived an acre or so up the hill mr conrad and his family were staying on Limp'sfield chart it was in those days mr garnet's ambition to appear what the french call les he might have been a very very long lizard indistinguishable save for his spectacles from the monstrous stones of his cavernous and troglodytic residence from his mansion the writer's two-roomed cottage might have been a volcanic fragment thrown off mr garnet frequently reproved the writer for wearing dark grey frieze it caused he said a blot on the limpsfield hillside into whose stones one should sink the writer was engrossed in carrying out experiments suggested by professor grossent of the sorbonne in paris he was trying to make tin lettuces grow where before had been ten thousand nettles and was writing articles for the outlook on the usage of the potato as an extirpator of thistles in sand that is accepted as good farming now upon the writer conrad made no impression at all mr conrad was the author of almayer's folly a great book of a romantic fashion but written too much in the style of alphonse daudet whom the writer had outgrown at school knowing the lettres de Moulin at eighteen by heart a great new writer then but as to great writers or artists this writer even then en avait cradled in the proof-sheets of rossetti with swinburne watts-dunton hall cain sir something hall cain and all the pre-raphaelites for the commonest object of his landscape and mr garnet used to lead the great new one by one to poke up the writer as if he had been a mangy lion the writer no doubt roared in that way mr garnet led up stephen crane conrad lord olivier now h b m minister for india the wife of the secretary of the fabian society the secretary of the fabian society a whole procession precisely as if one had been a mangy lion in a travelling menagerie or perhaps a man at the zoo and mr garnet would do the poking up telling the distinguished that the writer was possessed of too much individuality, ever to find readers. It was the most depressing period of a life, not lacking in depressing periods. The writer, perhaps, roared. Obviously the writer roared on that occasion, but he certainly rather disliked Conrad, as you dislike those who pass before your cage and get you poked up we went afterwards with several children up to the sloping lawn of mr garnet's residence it is at that point that a real remembrance of this beautiful genius comes to the writer one of the children crawled over the sloping grass as weak newborn kittens crawl another on the other hand with an engrossed face a little older whilst conrad stuck his eyeglass into his eye progressed for all the world like a col dujat of our paris streets two fists stuck into the ground one short leg projected the other curled underneath blond and determined it levered itself over the grass with its hands and between its arms and conrad threw back his head and laughed his eyeglass fell out he stuck it in his eye again and gazed at the child threw back his head and roared, and uttered odd words in Marcier French. Immediately afterwards Mr Garnet assured Mr Conrad for the third time that the writer was too individual ever to have a public for his writings. It was, of course, high praise. So the writer left Limpsfield and returned to the pent farm. A complete veil dropped between himself and Conrad, and then suddenly came the letter at whose reading the robin attended. The writer had indeed roared at Limpsfield. Obviously, he had told Conrad the story of John Kemp Aaron Smith, for Conrad asked him to consider the idea of a collaboration over that story, which Mr. Garnet had told him was too individual ever to find even a publisher. It would otherwise have been an impertinence on the part of Conrad, and Conrad was never impertinent. His politeness, even to his grocer, was always oriental. The writer's answer was the obvious one that Conrad had better come and see for himself what he had let himself in for, and Conrad came. But that time Conrad came. He was like the sultan of the true believers walking into a slave market— and for the writer that he remained until his lamentable death he was a gentleman adventurer who had sailed with drake elizabethan it was that that he was he has been called slav he has been called oriental he has been called a romantic he was none of these except on the surface to his grocer a man has to have a surface to present to his grocer or to afternoon callers he himself was just man homo europaeus sapiens attuned to the late sixteenth century in all the world he would have loved nothing better than to singe the king of spain's beard if it had not been to write a good book well he outwitted the dutch navy in malaysia and wrote the greatest books in the world he had an extraordinary old mare with such long ears that you took her for a mule she was called Nancy. And a black wickerwork chaise. And he cared for these things with the lively passion of a man. What he had must be ship-shape. Reins, bit, headstall, feed. I remember once in an inn-yard at Winchelsea an enormous fat six-feet-two lousy grey scoundrel of a stableman. Leaning back against a wall, he was, his face quivering, the colour of bill-stickers paste he panted i've heard tell of the british lion but protect me from the russian bear russian being as near as he could get to polish conrad had been talking to him he had been stealing the mare's feed of oats with a hypersensitiveness to impressions the writer too remembers conrad throwing teacups into the fireplace during a discussion over the divine right of kings a discussion with a lady who alleged light-heartedly that marie antoinette had been guilty of treason to france the whole of the discussion the writer did not hear because he was discoursing to a very deaf gentleman on the genealogical tree of the daring family nor indeed can conrad have thrown the teacups into the fire since on going away the lady said what a charming man mr conrad is i must see him often it was in short the passion of conrad that you noticed first and that passion he applied to his writing his darkness his wide gestures his eyes in which the light was like the glow of a volcano this is not overriding his personality deserved these tributes it was chivalry too after his discussion with the lady over the divine right of kings he was pale exhausted panting almost that was because he remembered marie antoinette in the Conciergerie, so ill-clad so deprived of her children so pallid and unkempt that to him she was real and he remembered her and she was dead and a cheerfully heartless fine lady should not make fun which was what it amounted to of dead queens dog should not eat dog fine ladies in silks should not gnaw the reputations of ladies fine that once wore finer silks and were now dead it was the want of imagination in all humanity thus in little summed up and presented to him that aroused in him such passion and called for such self-control for it is to be hoped that it is apparent that it was only to the writer that the impression remained of teacups thrown into the fireplace the writer has seen conrad just so enraged when the bishop of london returning from st petersburg after bloody monday remarked that russians would always have troubles until they were inculcated with the hearty british love of field games he detested russians his passion was rather for bonapartists than for the bourbons but that imbecilities should be uttered as to the lot of the suffering maddened him it is characteristic of conrad it is most characteristic of conrad that when after five years he and the writer got to the last paragraph of romance and when the writer had written for suffering is the lot of man conrad should have added but not inevitable failure or worthless despair which is without end suffering the mark of manhood which bears within its pain the hope of felicity like a jewel set in iron he had the mark of manhood he came then to the pent to see what he was in for he came in for passion and suffering the writer has seldom seen such suffering as was gone through by conrad during the reading of that first draft of romance Conrad had expected a drama of cuban pirates immense and gloomy like salumbo with a reddish illumination passing as it were upon a distant stage for the first chapter or two those passing at the pent farm he was silent then he became silent for he seemed to have about him a capacity for as it were degrees of intensity of his silence no doubt he listened to the first pages with a movement or so light a cigarette with a relaxing of the limbs or a change in the position in the chair these must gradually have ceased the parlour at the pent was a deep room with a beam across the middle of the low ceiling small pink monthly roses always showed insignificant blooms that looked over the window-sills An immense tithe barn with a great thatched black mossy roof filled in the whole view if you sat by the fireplace. Occasionally you would see a rat progressing musingly over this surface. If you approached the window you saw a narrow lawn running to a low brick wall, after which the level dropped to a great stackyard, floored usually with straw, and not unusually with a bullock or two in it conrad and the writer planted an orange tree grown from a pip under the low north wall of this narrow garden it was still alive in 1917 growing just up to the coping of the low wall where its progress was cut off by the north wind it was a very quiet simple room the writer sat in the grandfather's chair his back to the window beside the fireplace reading his manuscript held up to the light Conrad sat forward on a rush-bottomed armchair, listening intently. For how many years did the writer and Conrad not sit there like that? We began that reading after lunch of a shortish day. The lamps were brought in along with the tea. During that interval Conrad showed nervous and depressed, sunk in on himself and hardly answering questions conrad being then almost a stranger this was the writer's first experience of to what conrad's depression over an artistic problem could amount it was like a strong current that operated on a whole roomful with his back then to the lamp and conrad completely in the shadow the writer read on just having the impression that his hearer's limbs were all bunched together in his chair and that they contracted gradually there were many strong shadows in the low room where most of the light was on the ceiling conrad began to groan it was by then fairly apparent to the writer that conrad disapproved of the treatment of the adventures of john kemp at any rate in cuba and the writer had a sufficient sense already of conrad's temperament to be disinclined to ask whether his guests were ill He feels now the sense of, as it were, dumb obstinacy, with which he read on into those now vocal shadows in the fireside warmth. The interruptions grew in length of ejaculation. They became, "'Oh, oh, oh, God, my dear Hofer!' and, towards the end, "'Oh, God, my dear Fallet, how is it possible?' the writer finished with the statement that as it was june the nightingale sang a trifle hoarsely this zoological observation in spite of the cadence gave the final touch to conrad's dejection the writer's voice having stopped he exclaimed what what was that when he heard that that was the end he groaned and said good god for the last time There are writers, French writers, who can keep the final revelation of a whole long novel back until the last three words. For this he had hoped. The writer would rather have died than have so machined a book. Conrad was the most unrivalled hatcher of schemes for sudden and unlimited wealth, or for swift and undying glory to see him go upon one of these adventures was heartening in itself his face lit up his muscles tautened he first expatiated on his idea and then set out obviously his training as a master mariner inveighing unwilling eastern traders into shipping cargoes that they did not want to consign at prices that they did not want to pay to bottoms commanded by comrade for one reason or another, unsuited to their merchandise, this training helped him with direct human negotiations. To see him leaning over a counter, persuading the stolid Mr. Dan West, grocer of hythe to grant him credit unheard of in that market-town, was a singular study in fascination. The bearded, blinking, and very excellent grocer, I wish I knew his equal elsewhere, understood possibly the transaction which contained in its essence bills at three months mortgages i dare say on life insurances heaven knows what and then a triumphant progress to the white heart where the benign dark statuesque and really beautiful miss cobey presided in the dimmer recesses of that very old tavern and there sat the grocer, benevolent, pleased, blinking a little, a solid, wealthy fiftyish man, several times mayor of his ancient town, with great knowledge of men, quietly indulgent to the romantic visitor who had descended upon him. For all the world he might have been the stein of Lord Jim, contemplating the hero of that wonderful work, and saying within himself, Romantic, that's what he is romantic, and the beautiful, statuesque, slow moving Miss Cobay, invariably silent. The writer, at least, never heard her utter one word, except that years after motoring through that ancient Thankport, the writer, for old sake's sake, took a drink at the bar of the White Hart, and Miss Cobay, with her enigmatic gaze, asked after Mr. Conrad then many years gone from the pent for all the world like one of the silent women of conrad's early books the heroine of falk who never utters one word the writer alas alas seems to become marlow so be it conrad was conrad because he was his books it was not that he made literature he was literature the literature of the elizabethan gentleman adventurer think of setting out in an old wicker-work chaise drawn by what appeared to be a mule to persuade a height-grocer to give you three years credit think of setting out from stamford-le-hope a safe harbour where at least there was contact with ships estuaries tideways islands into an unknown hinterland of savage and unknown populations of bare downs out of sight of the refuge of the sea to persuade an unknown wielder of the pen the finest stylist in england to surrender his liberty to a sailing partnership to surrender to his glamorous subject for all the world as if you had adventured into the hinterlands behind palembang to ask someone only just known to give up to you for joint working the secret of one of those mysterious creeks where gold is found an adventure like that of victory itself and then to insult the owner of the creek with groans sighs o oh gods contortions well all we who supported conrad to his final so great victory were the subordinate characters of his books putting up with his extortionate demands for credit for patience or for subjects the steins the whaleys the captain mcquires and now the Marlowe's. for for some hours of that distant day of our romance the reader may be assured that the question of the very existence of that work hung in the balance it was truly as if rumplestiltskin had come to carry off the queen's child the dwarf conrad quotes grim in his epigraph answered no something human is dearer to me than all the wealth of the indies the writer please let the reader be assured has always been supremely indifferent to the fate of his books to the estimation in which they were held by any soul but joseph conrad to such things as career personal reputation and the rest conrad could hardly have selected a better discoverer of greeks to whom to go but the writer was not then ignorant of the vicissitudes of human life and of literary partnerships the terrible wrangles between henley and the relics and executors of stevenson were at that moment filling the press or one might remember the effects on johnson's fame of boswell to do what conrad then imperiously desired to surrender the creek to a joint partnership was asking for it it hung then in the balance but there gradually appeared after dinner through a long farmhouse night until two in the morning the magic it was magic there had been disclosures conrad had artlessly expounded his desires hearing at limpsfield the writer develop his miraculous subject of aaron smith last pirate ever to be tried at the old bailey of the creek with rio media at the bottom of it and the pirate schooners with nicola el escozes in command sailing out to the sack of brig victoria with her cargo of logwood rum raw sugar and dyes conrad had imagined a robust book with every drop of the subject squeezed out of it whereas it was characteristic of the writer that though in the trial aaron smith had deposed to a lady bearing the glamorous name of serafina riego daughter of a jue de la primera instancia known as the star of cuban law and inhabiting the pirate city of rio media in cuba The writer had very carefully left out this lady in the first draft of his book, the lady with whom John Kemp sat under the horse nightingale, having been a carefully limbed figure with bare shoulders and a handkerchief called Veronica. Conrad had expected to hear a reading by the finest stylist in England of a work far flung in popularity as Treasure Island, but as written as Salimbo, by the addition to which, of a few touches of description, sea atmosphere, mists, riggings, and the like, in a fortnight, fortune should lie at the feet of the adventurers. It was another of those magic enterprises. Alas, after five years' work, there was a romance with succès d'estime. Not much of that, even for the critics of our favoured land do not believe in collaboration. Conrad's marvellous play and change of features came now into the story. Ruffled, the writer, even before dinner, had explained the nature of the tour de force he had attempted. This was the narrative of a very old man looking back upon that day of his romance, as to-day this narrator looks back. You are getting the real first draft of romance now." this is how in truth it comes out according to the technical scheme then laid down by us two before dinner then conrad listened to the writer's apologia with a certain frigid deference of course if that was the way of it no doubt but why choose such a subject a man of sixty-two yes yes of course He remained, however, shut up in the depth of his disappointment, and still more in his reprobation of the criminal who could take hold of such a theme, and not, gripping it by the throat, extract from it every drop of blood and glamour. He disliked the writer as a criminal. Fortune thrown away, a book turned into the dry bone of a technical feat. He exclaimed, Let me look at it, let me look at the manuscript shuffled the leaves distastefully as if they had been the evidence of a crime to throw away fortune that was not shipshape to murder a subject that was murder foul unnatural the dinner bell rang at dinner there were ladies gradually the depressed conrad became conrad pepper came under discussion he declaimed as to how the greatest wars in the world had been fought for pepper the spice islands the east came into the room for a little while with whopping old stairs the tents of the army over constantinople at the end of the russo-turkish war with conrad as a sailor before the mast on the deck of a messagerse maritime transport there ensued a desperate wrangle as to whether saffron had any flavor in the course of the consumption of curry conrad declared that saffron had no flavor the writer that saffron was one of the most strongly flavored of all possible herbs conrad swore that he had carried whole cargoes of saffron he had spent his life in carrying cargoes of saffron he had known no other pursuits the writer on the other hand had given more saffron to diseased poultry than ever conrad had carried and had in addition reproved cooks enough to make ships crews for not putting sufficient saffron into poule au riz. conrad declared that that was merely to give the rice an agreeable colour the writer called it a most disagreeable an offensive colour conrad's eyes flashed dangerously his teeth white under his drawn-back moustache. We both contemplated Calais Sands. Someone changed the conversation to Pearl's. In all our ten thousand conversations down the years, we had only these two themes over which we quarrelled, as to the taste of saffron, and as to whether one sheep is distinguishable from another. After that first dinner, Conrad talked, there being people present whom he found sympathetic, when he talked on such occasions he was like his mirror of the sea indeed a great part of his mirror of the sea was just his talk which the writer took down in a shorthand of his own extemporizing recalling to conrad who was then in a state of great depression various passages of his own relating alas three weeks ago the writer drove in a black shaken, hooded contrivance, over a country of commonplace downlands, the continuation of the Kentish downs beyond the channel. He went, jolted behind an extravagant female quadruped, between fields of wheat that small winds ruffled into cat's paws, and the parallel was so intimately exact that the writer found himself saying to himself, "'Well, Ford Monvier, how could you render that field of wheat?' the reader must take this record of a coincidence as a sincerity for the days have been innumerable upon which behind the amiable mare of conrad's or a far less amiable exmoor pony of the writers we drove say between eighteen ninety eight and nineteen o five over a country of commonplace downlands and asked ourselves how we should render a field of ripe corn, a ten-acre patch of blue-purple cabbage, a hopost. We could try the words in French: celerie, bleu foncé, bleu du roi. We could try back into English, cast around in the back of our minds for other French words to which to assimilate our English, and thus continue for quiet hours. So three weeks ago to-day, thus does one return to one's old loves, the writer drove from just such a ramshackle commonplace farm-building, in an undistinguishable country, over slight hills on a flinty by-road, and heard Conrad saying to him, "'Well, Ford, vieux, how would you render that field of wheat?' Unless you have these details, you cannot know how immensely strong an impression this beautiful genius made on a mind not vastly impressionable or prone to forming affections. So the writer continued turning the matter over. He went on thinking first of French and then of English Champ de Bleek, Le Vent Faible, Cornfields. No, not cornfields, because that to Americans signifies maize. Wheat fields, fields of wheat, that the weak, feeble, light. What sort of winds? Breezes, airs. There is no occupation more agreeable on a still day. It is more restful, really, than fishing in a pond. Fields of wheat that small winds ruffled into cat's paws. That is, of course, too literary. These considerations remained in the front of his mind, as he was jolted over the abominable granite sets of a small market-town to the dilapidated station. He continued to think of wheat, dusty, bronzed, golden, as if running away over a small hillside, whilst he purchased tickets of a disagreeable woman behind a grill, whilst he purchased an English paper of a very agreeable woman in a blue pinafore on the railway platform he said "Dans le vent faible celonnet les surfaces whilst looking at black capital letters in the paper that his companion held folded it struck him at once this is a bad joke that paper is of the sort that makes bad jokes he was speaking to me not 5 not 3 minutes not 3 seconds just now on this platform the duskyish voice with the brown accent rather caressing. The writer exclaimed, Look, look! His companion unfolded the paper. The announcement went across two columns in black leaded caps, Sudden Death of Joseph Conrad. They were demolishing an antiquated waiting room on the opposite platform, three white dusty men with pickaxes. A wall was all in broken zigzags. The writer said to himself, c'est le mur d'un silence éternel qui descend devant vous there descended across the dusty wall a curtain of moonlight thrown across by the black shadows of oak trees we were on a veranda that had a glass roof under the glass roof climbed passion flowers and vine tendrils strangled them we were sitting in deck chairs it was one o'clock in the morning conrad was standing in front of us talking talking on and on, in the patches of moonlight and patches of shadow from the passion-flowers and vines. The little town in which we were dominated the English Channel from a low hilltop. He was wearing a dark reefer coat and white trousers. He was talking of Malaysia, palm-trees, the little wives of rajahs in coloured sarongs, or perhaps not sarongs, crouched round him on the ground he himself cross-legged on the ground teaching the little wives of rajahs to use sewing-machines moored to a rotting quay as it might have been palambang but of course it was not palambang was his schooner his schooner had in its hold half a cargo of rifles under half a cargo of sewing-machines the rajahs husbands of the little wives did not like their dutch suzerains and in that country the war has lasted not five, but three hundred and fifty-five years. That, then, was Conrad on the occasion when he talked as he did on that first evening after dinner. His voice was then usually low, rather intimate and caressing. He began by speaking slowly, but later on he spoke very fast. His accent was precisely, rather dusky, the accent of dark rather than fair races. He impressed the writer at first as a pure Marseilles Frenchman. He spoke English with great fluency and distinction, with correctitude in his syntax, his words absolutely exact as to meaning, but his accentuation so faulty that he was at times difficult to understand and his use of adverbs as often as not eccentric. He used shall and will very arbitrarily. He gesticulated with his hands and shoulders when he wished to be emphatic, but when he forgot himself in the excitement of talking, he gesticulated with his whole body, throwing himself about in his chair, moving his chair nearer to yours. Finally he would spring up, Go to a distance and walk backwards and forwards across the end of the room. When the writer talked, he was a very good listener, sitting rather curled up, whilst the writer walked unceasingly backwards and forwards along the patterned border of the carpet. We talked like that from about ten when the ladies had gone to bed until half-past two in the morning. We talked about Flaubert and Maupassant sounding each other really conrad was still then inclined to have a feeling for daudet for such books as jack this the writer contemned with the sort of air of the superior person who tells you that hermitage is no longer a wine for a gentleman we talked of turgenev the greatest of all poets Prairie from the letters of a sportsman the greatest of all pieces of writing Turgenev, wrapped in a cloak, lying in the prairie at night, at a little distance from a great fire, beside which the boy horse-tenders talked desultorily about the ruzalki of the forest, with the green hair and water-nymphs that drag you down to drown in the river. We agreed that a poem was not that which was written in verse, but that, either prose or verse, that had constructive beauty." we agreed that the writing of novels was the one thing of importance that remained to the world and that what the novel needed was the new form we confessed that each of us desired one day to write absolute prose but that which really brought us together was a devotion to flaubert and Maupassant. we discovered that we both had felicity saint julien le immense passages of madame bovary la nuit ces Cochon de morin and immense passages of une vie by heart or so nearly by heart that what the one faltered over the other could take up and indeed on the last occasion when we met in may of this year agreeing that we had altered very little surprisingly little oh not the least in the world the writer began la nuit balancée par Laurentin, and Conrad went on tandis que le feu Gregoire riait, right down to et comme était très fort hardi, courageux et avisé. Before we went on that earlier night to bed, Conrad confessed to the writer that previous to suggesting a collaboration he had consulted a number of men of letters as to its advisability he said that he had put before them his difficulties with the language the slowness with which he wrote and the increased fluency that he might acquire in the process of going minutely into words with an acknowledged master of english The writer imagines that he had actually consulted Mr. Edward Garnett, W. E. Henley, and Mr. Marriott Watson. Of these, the only one that Conrad mentioned was W. E. Henley. He stated succinctly and carefully that he had said to Henley—Henley had published The Nigger of the Narcissus in his review— "'Look here. I write with such difficulty. My intimate, automatic, less expressed thoughts are in Polish.' When I express myself with care, I do it in French. When I write, I think in French, and then translate the words of my thoughts into English. This is an impossible process for one desiring to make a living by writing in the English language." And Hindley, according to Conrad, on that evening had said, "'Why don't you ask H. to collaborate with you? He is the finest stylist in the English language of today.' the writer it should be remembered though by ten or fifteen years the junior of conrad was by some years his senior at any rate as a published author and was rather the more successful of the two as far as sales went henley obviously had said nothing of the sort Indeed, as the writer has elsewhere related, on the occasion of a verbal duel that he had later with Henley, that violent-mouthed personality remarked to him, Who the hell are you? I never even heard your name. Or words to that effect. It probably does not very much matter. What had no doubt happened was that Conrad had mentioned the writer's name to Henley, and Henley had answered, I dare say he'll do as well as anyone else. No, it probably does not matter, except as a light on the character and methods of Joseph Conrad, and as to his ability to get his own way. For it was obviously une émission forte that the writer received in those small hours in a sufficiently dim farmhouse room. In such affairs, Conrad's caressing, rather dragging voice would take on a more Polish intonation and would drop. His face would light up, It was as if he whispered, as if we both whispered in a conspiracy against a sleeping world. And no doubt that was what it was. The world certainly did not want us, not at that date, and to be reputed the finest English stylist was enough, nearly, to get you set to jail. Something foreign, that was what it was.' At any rate, when, with a flat candlestick, the writer at last showed his guest into a shadowy, palely-papered, coldish bedroom, and closed the door on him, he felt as if a king were enclosed within those walls. A king conspirator, a sovereign pretender, Don Carlos, of a world whose subjects are shadows. End of section 1